wanna be a starving artist I don't wanna be a starving artist I just want to find a way to live Hey! I'm Ona Eastley and welcome back to Starving Artist, the podcast at the middle of the Venn diagram between art and money. Here to say, I don't know what compound interest is either. So you don't have to feel so bad when your accountant looks at you weird for asking. This week, I've got the second part of an interview I did with Sarah Firth. The first half of this interview became episode seven, Designing Your Creative Life which is easily one of the most loved episodes of the first season so far. If you're new here, I actually recommend you listen to that episode first because it'll give you some great context for who Sarah Firth is and where her delectable ideas are coming from. But for those of you who vowed to disobey my recommendations and haven't listened to it yet, Sarah Firth is an artist and writer. She's currently working on her debut graphic novel, She's also a creative entrepreneur. She's successfully run her own small business for the past seven years, which is where she makes her cash, providing creative services. She makes films, animations, does graphic recording to all manner of organizations. Now, this episode is some straight up hashtag real talk about how money works. The first five minutes, we talk about maneuvering in your creative career The next five, Sarah gives me the lowdown on her best resources for getting in control of your life and money. And then the following 40 minutes is some down-the-line truths about financial literacy, like how to get interested in money, how to work out how much to charge for your work, how to make a budget, and why you should absolutely definitely look at your finances, even if it means breaking your own little art heart in the process. For those of you who haven't been on the Sarah Firth train before, she's basically a fountain of knowledge. So much so that after I released episode seven, which features Sarah, someone contacted me to say that they took three pages of notes just from that interview. Sarah Firth is best listened to with a pen in hand, I believe. Or better yet, while looking at the show notes for this episode. We mention a lot of resources in here and I've put them all together for you in the handy dandy show notes. You can find them at starvingartistpodcast.com forward slash listen, and you can click on each thing as we talk about it. And just before we get stuck into it, as I mentioned, this interview has been split up into two parts, so it starts and it ends a little abruptly. If you would like more Sarah Firth, listen to episode seven already. Just listen to it. She's amazing. Okay, let's get into it. If something isn't working in your life, I'd say like don't hide from it um, oh god I'm so terrible at that. <laughs> yeah like if something isn't working in your life don't hide from it actually look at it I find writing is a really gentle way to start looking at it and that way you can proactively work to resolve it or like transform it or use it as fuel for something else it's so funny I'm in this really privileged position where a lot of what I do or put out into the world is my feelings and yeah. so <laughs> It genuinely, like, my process is part of doing that. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I'd say is, like, something that's very liberating for me and maybe of interest to other artists is to, like, step outside of your art world, wherever that might be, and step into some 
adjacent but totally different world. So like community development or business or health or something and just step into that space because doing that is a great way to challenge your assumptions and the way that you work and see how other spaces in the world work. And you might find that that is a space you're very interested in or not, but you'll still bring back wisdom from that experience to your practice. I mean, I did that a lot when I was like, holy shit, I don't have a fucking career (laughs) Um, two years ago. And then I started doing more volunteer work in mental health. And then I ended up getting a job in mental health. And I learned a lot about how the mental health system works, but also how just large organizations work. Yeah. And now I've gotten a lot more work out of that and that's part of my job. But Mm. at the time I was thinking like, fuck, I think I need to go study something else. But the idea of committing to like a three-year, five-year, however long year degree to do something I had no idea if I would actually like Mm. was terrifying. So I was like, "Mm, how do I experiment with exploring a thing Mm. where I don't have to commit a bunch of years to it And a lot of money. And a lot of money, yes. Yeah. That's a really interesting point because people often ask me, will I go back to university and do masters because I'm someone who is reasonably academic and I like critical reading, but I don't know that I will. Who knows? I prefer applied learning. So I prefer, like you said, if I think I may be interested in psychology or something, I would find some way to get involved in that sphere by going to talks or volunteering somewhere or, you know, this kind of thing, just so I can taste it and see what it is before investing, particularly in long-term study, mainly because of cost for me. But (laughs) so I think that's really good advice as well as if you think you might be interested in some sector, volunteer, try it out before you spend money on a degree. I always talk about minimum viable product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is a term which is often used in like entrepreneur, real ship, startup kind of places of like, how do we make this thing as cheaply and quickly as possible so we can give it to people and test it? Mm. But I try and do that a lot with my life of like, okay, what's the minimum viable product of testing this idea yeah. <laughs> or this interest or this thing that I could do? Which has gotten me to making a bunch of stuff that I wouldn't have expected to make. Yeah. And that's just a really sensible approach because then you're not investing and then regretting it. You're just nibbling and seeing and testing. And I think the other thing is like for me for a long time it was the only way to get started on something because the terror of making something perfect was too great. Totally. That it, I just couldn't move anywhere. Yeah, yeah. And I think like, you know, if you're – If you're an artist who's in the situation of, can I make my art my career? Can I make it my job? But you're working full-time or part-time in an office, let's say. There's no reason why you can't start exhibiting your work more or selling on Etsy or just try these things. Start doing some market stalls. Try them. See if you like them. That was a big blind spot for me when I first started my plant store is I didn't realize that I actually don't like markets. <laughs> As I was, my main revenue was coming from markets, but I just really disliked sitting all day at a market talking to people and having people fondle my stuff and then say like I could make this myself and walk off. Like I just really didn't enjoy that at all. <laughs> I wonder why. That sounds like such a I lovely just, thing. Yeah, I just didn't like it. But so just 
bouncing off your like what's your career I have a bunch of resources that I wanted to share for people who might be interested please and one that ties in with that is there's a little article on Facebook that Elizabeth Gilbert who's the person that wrote Big Magic and Eat Pray Love wrote it's a fabulous short article about the difference between a hobby a job a career and a vocation and in that she goes through how to figure out whether your art is best as a hobby for you, best as a job for you, best as your career, or whether it's your vocation. And so she draws this line between career being kind of a money-based endeavor and vocation being a calling. So for me, I fit into like my business is my career kind of, like that's where I make my most money. Um, Whereas my art making is my calling and my vocation. So I have that split whereas some people are so busy and they have so much going on and so for a time it's best for their art to perhaps be a hobby or a vocation and then later on it might shift into being the career again or yeah and it's just I found that very liberating to play with these different settings around how to be creative and also survive and thrive with your money. Um, I like that idea though that it can move around. Yeah I had some coaching from a friend of mine who works as a coach for CEOs. She just offered to give me coaching and she introduced me to this great idea that like, if you have two things in your life that are opposing. So for me, it's like business and my art. They're two things that are in tension because they're vying for my time. And she said, rather than seeing them as in competition, why don't you see it as like a sound desk and they're the two points of a slider. Mm. So there's no balance. You just move the slider up and down depending on what you want. Like one year you might be more business focused, so you'll move the slider closer to business. Another year you might be more art focused, so you move the slider to art. And you can just keep moving that slider as need be. And you can have that for any kind of dichotomies that you might have in your life where you feel tension. And you can just like tweak it, tweak it, tweak it. Found that really, really awesome as a way to think about those things. So a few other resources. So one that is a YouTube talk. Actually, no, I think it's a TED talk. I'm not sure. It's called The Power of Time Off. And that's a talk by Stefan Sagmeister, who's a designer who talks about the power of taking sabbaticals. It's really great. There's also a book by Andrew Simonet that's called Making Your Life as an Artist, which I love to bits. It's so good. It's a tiny book and it's totally tattered and bashed around and because I read it so much and it's just Simple, straightforward, on the money, read it. There's a free PDF version that you can get. Yes. I would also suggest, for me, the hard copy has been really, really useful to have. The other thing that they have is working groups. So they have, Andrew's put together a course. It's like a five-week course. You can do it with a group of friends. All of the tools you need are completely free and online. And it's a way of kind of doing a lot of the stuff that that we've just talked about. Yeah. So I also use a desk calendar that's made by an Australian creative entrepreneur called Leonie Dawson. And she makes these workbooks that are called Your Shining Year. She has a desk calendar book that I use that is just a really nicely segmented week planner where you have like little to-do lists and how much your financial targets for that week. And it's it's a very simple template, but I just find the format that it's in really good for whittling down my tasks and then at the end of each month it's got you know how did you go this month what worked what didn't work blah 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 and then for the next month it's got a you know what are your key goals this month 
what are you going to do when you get there? So figuring out rewards for yourself and incentives. Oh my God, that's such a great idea. Yeah. So it's like, if I get this stuff done this month, I will have a massage or I will go for a trip to the mountains by myself and eat a eclair or, you know, whatever. Just those things that help you feel like you know what's going on. (laughs) And the other resource that I just like, I cannot recommend enough is an app that's called Money Brilliant. It is free. The reason why it is free is because they take your data anonymously and they sell that to marketers. So they'll take the fact that you're 32 and that you earn this much a month and you spend this much on utilities, blah, blah, blah. And they will use that as kind of like census data around the habits of someone like that, Yeah, which I have, I mean, some people may have a problem with, but I have no problem with that. So I've had a, a money brilliant for a year and having all of the data around how I've spent over the past year has been so useful for developing my budgets for this year. And it's just a really super powerful tool. So I highly recommend that. So those are my key resources. They are good. Yeah. They are good. So on financial literacy, you said you had some ideas, kind of like facts that are just really good to know. Yeah, yeah. Creatives. So I have like four main points about like how to think about and work with money just to make your life a bit easier. So the first point I would say is like just getting better financial literacy. Financial literacy in the arts is typically a lot lower than in other industries. And so it's just good to just make sure that you upskill. What do you mean by financial literacy? So financial literacy is... For example, health literacy would be knowing about vitamins and minerals and that you can't just eat two minute noodles forever and not get sick. You know, your body needs these certain things to function well, that that, that kind of thing. So it's just knowing how it works, basically. My financial literacy journey has been a bumpy one because I'm very much not a numbers person. (laughs) And the biggest challenge for me was getting interested in it. So I had to kind of force myself to get interested in it and be like, this is really, really important and find ways to make it fun for yourself. Another really important thing with financial literacy is to realize that finance is a system and a tool and that money is an enabler. That's all it is. That's what money is. It's an enabler that's embedded in every aspect of our lives. Yeah. You know, and Ethically, theoretically, you can have big problems with the capitalist system that we're in. But the fact is that if you aren't aware of how the system works, you are going to be at a disadvantage because there's going to be all this stuff happening around you that you just don't know why and how. And once you start to understand it a bit better, you can kind of see where you are, see what you can do and what you can't do, depending on where you're at, where your values are, blah, blah, blah. So financial literacy is also learning how things work. It's about learning how to save and pathways of investment or building assets. It's about learning frugality and budgeting, seeing your spending habits and gaining control over finances so that you can alleviate stress that's associated with finances. So that's what I would consider financial literacy is. It's that kind of getting an idea of how it works and how it can work for you. That sounds great. Do you have anything particular that you read or looked at that was helpful? No, I kind of wish that there was some really nice, concise book. Like I have seen a few things that are like a lot of the money books are like how to get rich quick. And like even if you talk to your bank or a accountant, they tend to come from the perspective of how can you maximize 
your earnings and maximize your savings. And the reality is that if you're an artist, your time tends to be in competition between money making and art making. And so the logic of being an artist seems quite weird to people who work in finance. That's been my experience anyway. And so I've kind of had to tweak (laughs) my understanding of finance to suit me rather than me trying to fit the system. Yeah, totally. I just want to mention I recently read a book called The Barefoot Investor. That's a book that's written by an Australian guy and it's for an Australian audience and it's kind of designed to be for everyone. So it's quite an easy read and I learned a lot from it and it made me feel like, oh yeah, there were some ways of being more in control of money in my life. And do you feel like a lot of that was just understanding more about how it works? Yeah, stuff. I mean, he talks very specifically around like superannuation and tricks around like if you earn under this amount and you contribute this amount to your superannuation, then the government will also contribute 50 cents to the dollar. And these are the banks where you don't have to pay fees. And this is how compound interest works. (laughs) You know, like, stuff you're like, oh, important things I should know. Yeah. And the thing is, like, no one is going to tell you that stuff. You need to go and find it. And even for me, like, I didn't know that that book Like there are plenty of resources out there that I'm not aware of. And the way that I've learned a lot of this is through finding helpers. So talking to friends of mine who were successful with finance and asking them, how do you do it? And having these hilarious conversations where I'd be like, but why do you put this much super aside? And what happens here? And why is this tax like this? And and them being like, how do you not know this? And me being like, I just don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of that comes from like a lot of financial education that we get is from our parents and from our families and from the things we see around us. And so if you don't have a lot of available information, you can just totally not know how it works at all. Also, I think the culture in Well, my experience anyway in art school and then like being in a community of people who've also done creative degrees and stuff like that is that everyone expects that that won't happen. Mm -hmm. Like that you're not going to have money so there's no point kind of really learning about it. Yeah. And what's interesting is I'm kind of in that and then there's this, I'm in another community that's more kind of like young professionals where people are buying houses and stuff and they're, you know, in the, mid to late 20s wow <laughs> yeah I know it's, it's terrible I'm like what the hell and it's interesting because over there people are much more financially literate but also they don't really talk about it very yeah, much yeah, because yeah. you don't really talk about like how you bought a house you know people don't really talk about that stuff that much yeah yeah it's yeah. kind of rude there's lots of awkward conversations about privilege yeah totally totally but yeah I think that being in the culture which many artists are kind of in which is the expectation that you won't make money so there's no point learning about it because I mean in a bunch of ways the system can be like it's fucking corrupt oh yeah (laughs) it totally is and I feel like in the financial system you have like the financial gatekeepers who kind of sit in the middle who are very much about rules doing it right you know everything has to be accountable and then the richer people get the fuzzier that stuff gets and the more outlandish, weird financial stuff is going on. And it's so abstract and bizarre the way it works that it's quite crazy and illogical to me, but that's how it works. And again, it's really useful to learn about all that magical, weird stuff uh, and see what your options are. But I think that future planning, particularly for a lot of people I know, is very scary 
And the thing with money is that to create wealth and stability with your money, you do need to be future focused. You do need to actually have a plan. And that's really hard and scary for a lot of people, particularly if your life is very up and down and fluctuates financially. You can feel like, oh, I just can't. I can't think five years in advance, you know, and people don't want to break their own hearts. But I still think like you really need to get clarity around where you're at. And so my second point with this is like, what's your relationship with money? So this is the kind of emotional side of stuff. And I think particularly artists have a complex relationship with money because of cultural factors. What I think, like if you are struggling with money, it's just really good to interrogate your ideas, beliefs, myths about being an artist and your relationship with money. I just watched a talk the other day by David Reese, who's a he's kind of a comic artist illustrator. He has a TV show. He did this talk at XOXO Festival and he talked about his financial situation for the last 16 years. And he said, like, this is what I earned. This is where I earned it from. This is what was happening. <laughs> very funny, very brave, actually, I think, to be that open. One thing he talked about was there was this point where he did, I think, a Kickstarter. Anyway, he got like $100,000 and he ended up donating it because he felt so bad about the fact that he'd gotten this money off the work that he'd done. And reflecting on it, he was like, I wish I had kept some of that because I had a challenging time and it would have been really useful to <laughs> to have that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that highlights this thing of like in a lot of other areas in society, your wealth is an indicator of your success. Whereas in the arts, there's almost an inverse thing, which is like if you're an artist making a lot of money, it's suspect. Yeah, there's yeah. There's this tension there because there's all this stuff of like art shouldn't be about money. Art should be about culture and thought and ideas and it shouldn't be corrupted by finance. It's really complicated and <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, messy cultural ideas and then also our own personal ideas Yeah, yeah. around um, what art making should be about. Yeah, so with your relationship with money, I think it's important to get real about what your ideas are around selling out. A lot of people have this fear of being a sellout and also realizing that your relationship with money will change over time and your priorities, health, age, opportunities will change and whether you have dependence or not will change and so that will change your relationship with money. Something that's quite important that I think people don't acknowledge enough is what you call a money script. And so what your money script is, is it's this subconscious idea that you have about what money is and what it means and whether you deserve it or not. And most of that is written when you're a child um, and based on like friends and family and what they tell you and also what you observe and the experiences that you have as you grow up. And so there, are, I think there are like four main scripts that people tend to have that can be really problematic. So the first one, which I think as an artist I've fallen into for many years was money avoidance. That stuff like not wanting to think about how much you're actually earning. You feel kind of fearful, anxious, and maybe a little bit disgusted about money stuff. And you have these ideas of like the haves and have nots. And that's a bad space to be in because you just have no clarity or control over what's going on. On the flip side, you have like money worship where people are convinced that money will solve their problems and make them happy. 
but then they feel like money's never enough. The third is status. So people using money as an indicator of how good they are. And then there's the vigilance model, which is people who tend to be super frugal, save a lot and are very, very private about how they do money stuff. They often are very successful because Uh they're able to leverage leverage their money. You know, and I think about, you know, people's parents and grandparents often like that. Like they're just very private, you know, and like people might hide money stuff from their spouse, things like that. Like they just, and often people who've been through depression or something like that money takes on this like urgent importance and protecting it and being very careful is important because you don't want someone to rob you or you don't want someone to take advantage of you and get your money so there's this vigilance and privateness that makes sense if you've had experiences where people might have taken from you that's so funny I wouldn't have thought that I would have identified with that but I was in a really shitty relationship when I was younger and kind of got manipulated out of over $6,000 when I was like 18. And that totally changed my relationship with money in relationships and yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's worth like looking at where you're at with your relationship to money to see where you fit. Because you may be an artist who isn't very good at making money, who doesn't have money, but for you money is about status. So you feel like a huge failure because you don't, have this thing that you think you need for various reasons and unless you interrogate that it can be really hard to shift your thinking and so I would just recommend like sort of thinking about all that relationship stuff and getting clear on the fact that wealth basically is money times time so the sooner you can save money or invest money or start budgeting over time you will make more money it's like a tree growing or going to the gym to build your pecs. Like it's just little, little bits regularly. And we always underestimate, humans underestimate how valuable small effort is over time in all kinds of areas. And with money, it's like a key thing. So what you're saying here about the money script and also the wealth equals dollars times time, that's absolutely what is in The Barefoot Investor, which is oh, the really? book that I just talked about before yeah he talks about like what did you yeah what did your parents do with money how did you learn about how you use money most of his stuff is about like how do you make your present comfortable and then how do you make your future safe yeah yeah so with what you've just said I would say another important thing around your relationship with money is playing around with a couple of ideas. So the first one is like, what is the absolute minimum that you can live off? So that would be basic things like rent, food, mobile phone, like absolute basics. What allows you to live? And knowing that it's like, you can't go below that or it's gonna be really stressful and difficult. The second thing is figuring out how much money is the bracket that makes you comfortable. So that means that you can afford to drive a car to the beach, go to the fish and chip shop and have a beer, uh, go to a festival occasionally, buy a nice hat. You know, like what are things that make you feel nice, comfortable, not extravagant, but just like a little bit of extra money. But then also thirdly, figuring out what amount of money will actually allow you to thrive and save and invest and actually make progress financially so that you're looking after your future. You have a six month saving for if you get sick 
or injured or things like that. And being aware of those thresholds is really good to be able to gauge where you're at and where you might want to go. Because, yeah, money is built into everything that we do and your habits will shape the way that you spend. And so if you're not aware of your habits, that's a problem. It'll also shape the way that you work. Yeah. Like after reading the Making Your Life as an Artist, the Andrew Simonet book we mentioned earlier, there's this bit in it where he talks about working out like, okay, if I need this much money and I work approximately this much, this is how much I need to earn a day kind of thing. And then it means that if someone's like, I will pay you $300 to do this thing, then I'm like, okay, well, I'll do that. But that thing, I'm only spending this day on it. Exactly. And it's totally changed how I do my work because previously I would just put as much time into the thing Mm. so that it was amazing. (laughs) And it would kind of blow out everything else and I'd be stressing about money. But being like, okay, so I know that that really should equal that much time. Exactly. And so you've touched on a really important thing, which is, So if you can imagine a Venn diagram of three circles venning together, the equation is time, materials, and value. So those three factors are how you should charge for your work. So let's say you are an illustrator. You might go to the Illustrators Australia website and look at the recommended rates, which are like, let's say $1,000 for A4 full color drawing. If you actually look at how many hours it takes you to do your illustration, you may be able to do it in 30 minutes. Good for you. Great technique. Love it. You're making big bucks because you can just do lots and lots of work. But if you have a special technique that takes you a week, goodness me, you need to charge a lot more. You need to see how much time you're actually working. And the thing with creative work is not only is it the materials and the time making the work, There's all of the kind of intangible thinking space, all of the years of experience that go into you being able to make that work. And when you actually calculate the value of what you're making, you might need to charge $3,000 for your illustration. And that can be quite scary to see that, but it's important to know your value, like actually treat yourself like you were a business and you're creating a product that takes time And how much should you be getting for that so that you don't undersell yourself? Because otherwise you'll have that problem of like you're working your heart out, but you're just scraping by. And it's because this equation isn't working. And maybe you tweak your technique, you become faster, or maybe you charge more and you become more of a kind of niche producer, a boutique producer, who knows? Oh yeah, totally. Like an example, I was in this space where I was doing a lot of editing of podcasts and realizing oh my God, it did my head in. Not so much the time spent doing it, but the worrying around it that happened all during the week. And I'd be editing at least one hour of audio a week, Mm. sometimes over. Anyway, then I went through the process of trying to find someone else that I could pay to do it for me. And that was really interesting process. I learned a lot. And one thing that was interesting is it changed how I did podcasts Mm. because I was more organized because someone else had to do it. And they needed the instructions to be clear. But also then I'd be like, hmm, maybe we should make these podcasts a bit shorter (laughs) so that then it costs less to edit them. Like the the process kind of goes on and on and on. And it's kind of nice being in a space where you're like, oh, I I can make those decisions. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hey, 
Sorry to interrupt. It's me from the future. I come to you from Starving Artist HQ, aka my bedroom, to give you some really exciting news. But first, I had to share this news with my dad. Hello, Peter here. Hi, Dad. How are you doing? It's your daughter. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's wonderful. I actually wanted to call you because I have I have a news to tell you. Oh. So you know yeah. how I've been doing um, that podcast that I've been doing, Starving Artist? Yeah. So uh, my podcast got sponsored. Oh, that's great. Ah. Yeah, actually your sister already told me. Wait, don't you already know this? Yeah. It's still great. <laughs> oh, my God. Fucking Amy, Jesus Christ. Okay, well, it's still good news, and I'll still say yeah. that you are the first person that I wanted to call Dad. Oh, thank you, darling. <laughs> are you proud of me? Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. That's correct. Starving Artist got sponsored. So I'm proud to say that this is the very first episode that was actually sponsored by Etsy. I don't know if you know what Etsy is, but it's an online marketplace where you can sell your own art and where you can buy pretty much anything from anyone in the world. We've partnered up for the rest of the first season of Starving Artist, but instead of doing normal ads, boring, I'm going to be trying my hand at starting an Etsy store myself. And I'll be documenting the process and sharing it in bits and pieces with you guys here. You can hear more about it at the very end of this episode, where you can hear me make sounds like this. (laughs) And this. Genuinely surprised. (laughs) And you can also potentially beat me in a competition and win stuff. So stay on board for that. Or if you're really impatient, you can check out the details while you listen to this episode at starvingartistpodcast.com forward slash Etsy. I hope you enjoy this episode. Bye-bye. So I have one other thing to say with relationship with money is actually being clear about how much your activities cost. So you've just mentioned it with like your podcasts, but like, let's say you earned $60,000 from your artwork in a year you might be like holy smokes that's the big bucks good on me but if you draw a pie graph and you divvy up that sixty thousand dollars you're going to pay like nine percent gst 9.5 percent super 16 percent tax 22 percent will probably be business expenses you know 29 percent personal expenses and then you know if you're wanting to save or if you have a mortgage or something like that 20 percent might also go into that and so when you cut up your your pie, your profit might be like $5,000. And getting clear on like what is your expenditure is really, really important because you can think you're doing really well, but then when you break it apart, you have nothing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that really influences how much you charge, the way that you work, what you say yes and no to. And that's very important. And it also helps you feel empowered in making those decisions because you have reasons and evidence, you know. So funny. So in (laughs) 2015, at the end of 2015, I'd been at that stage kind of searching for how the fuck to make art and money and my life work for quite a while, like quite 
desperately like there was a lot of anxiety around it for like over a year at that point anyway I got offered my first job I got offered a position with Teacher Australia mm. oh, yeah, yeah. and they were like we'll pay for you to do masters we're gonna pay you to work uh, this is the most select entry graduate program in the country very fancy and it was like my ticket to like a normal job and being like oh well now I have a normal job something to rely on blah 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 and at the time I was like, fuck though, like I don't know if I can commit to that because it means that I cannot at all do the creative stuff that I love doing for at least the next two years. Like just forget about it. And <laughs> I made a decision based on very little data, <laughs> which is kind of impressive. Like I was like, look, I just started earning some money through my creative projects I think that that's probably going to grow and I think that there was a bunch of other reasons but I think that I want to commit to that and now looking at it and the way I look at my money now I can't believe I made that decision because if I looked at my budgets like there was just like no hope in hell at that point but at the same time a lot of shit happened and because I had made a specific decision that way it meant that I was much more focused Mm. Because I had been really intentional about what I wanted to do. If I hadn't have had to make that decision, I would have just been like kind of doing my thing. Yeah, totally. And I think sometimes taking whether you have hard evidence or not, as long as you've got some backup plan, like some saving, or if you have really nice parents where if everything goes to shit, you could maybe stay on the couch or something. It can be worth like taking that scary risk of like, I'm going to give these creative projects a go and try and grow them over a year or three years and then see where I'm at after that time. Because if you don't fully invest in following that, it can be quite hard to take the action and seize the opportunities to actually make it work. And like, so for someone like me, I'm very driven by deadlines, targets and goals. And like you, when I first started my creative business, I was earning like very, very little, like $15,000 in a year. But by setting, you know, the next year, I'm like, I'm going to earn $30,000. Wait, don't you actually set those targets? Yeah. So I have a little piece of paper here with like my financial trajectory. And so like I have the list of the different financial years with my earnings plus the gross, like the full earnings and then the after tax and things and just seeing it grow slowly and like sometimes I'd set a stretch goal of like I'm going to earn 30,000 this year and I ended up only earning like 20,000 or something but still I got a little bit closer and I think that for some people having those stretch goals can help you to kind of propel yourself into that space whereas if you don't have anything like if you don't have something on the line it can be quite hard to like get it going. And also that kind of thing, I'm not going to say what the figures are, but like, yeah, it does go up over time. And that's over the last six or seven years. Seven years. Yeah. You know, and things like, let's say my goal is 30,000 this year or something. I'll put that in a, I'll do a brainstorm. I'll put that in the middle of the page. Say my goal is to earn $30,000 and then I'll do a 20 idea brainstorm really fast of like, how can I earn $20,000 this year? So I might stick with things that I know how to do, like do some illustrations, do a video, whatever. But then I might come up with some crazy ideas of make a podcast or um, become a milliner or, you know, uh, write a book I can sell, make some stickers I can sell. What are, you know, passive income ideas. And, and often some really good ideas can come from those slightly left of field 
ideas and you can you know jump outside your comfort zone and learn new things and try new things and can lead to other stuff I gotta say I think like in terms of money but also successful projects I think half of it is just random shit and (laughs) half of it is like intentional like half of it is like oh actually I realized this is a good idea and half of it is like throwing things at the wall and being like wow that surprisingly worked yeah yeah so like to that point I think that my third piece of advice on financial literacy is like have a goal, have a saving goal and think about the future and where you would like it to go. And also what would you like your life to be like? Have a vision and a goal to pull you forward so that you can feel like you're progressing and growing towards something, but also be realistic that you may stumble at times and circumstances will change and that you may need to tweak that. But it's good to create a positive idea of what you would like and try and go for it. It's so difficult also finding that balance between like hating where you are now and then also making goals for yourself. Yeah, yeah. But it's like if you need to see your current state and your future state and see where the gap is in order to step into the future state and find out what are the little steps here? What do I need to learn? What do I need to let go of? What do I need to say yes to? I fucking love you. (laughs) (laughs) So like just to finish off this bit about financial literacy I just have a few like tools and tips please um for people who might be wanting to upskill and learn and things so the first thing I would recommend is go and talk to an accountant because any initial consultation is free there are some good art accountants around I just see a sort of normal business accountant just because I like him because I find him really funny and we're so different and we challenge each other and I always like that. But yeah, just talk with them. They will tell you straight away where you're like doing weird, dumb stuff that doesn't (laughs) doesn't work. And they'll also tell you what the rules are because, you know, finance is a system. It does have laws and rules and it's very good to know what they are. I would also suggest thinking of multiple income streams. So just bringing in a little bit of extra money. If you're an illustrator, Maybe make some books you can sell online. Maybe make some stickers, T-shirts, things like that, just to bring in a little bit of extra money. Just think about not putting all of your eggs in one basket because, again, the way the world is going, everything is shifting and changing and the robots are coming. So (laughs) we should really have a few strings to your bow, explore, read, learn. Jessica Abel has some good tips around this. She has a spreadsheet template which you can use to put in all of the product services that you currently offer. And also you can imagine new ones. Yeah, I did this, I think maybe a year or maybe more ago. Cause I was like, okay, what would I have to do to be able to earn $35,000 in a year? And that was when I really realized that, holy shit, you'd have to ha- sell like so many badges. Yeah. Or I could become a wedding celebrant and do like five weddings. Exactly. Right. It made me realize how much more it was kind of easier in some ways to earn money from services as in providing a service rather than selling a product, depending on how you price those things. Yeah. And so what you've just said is kind of why my business has grown into being a services business, because again, I can earn way more money for less time doing the service that I do rather than making fine art products or doing workshops, which I love doing, but it's just if I'm interested in finding a balance between 
making good money, but also having time to do my work, the simpler and high impact a job, the better so that I have more time back. Whereas if I'm running a workshop, I might still make good money, but there's all the prep, there's all the materials, there's all the feedback afterwards. Like there's a lot more moving parts. It's very good to look at like different ways that you can make that money and play with it. Another tool that is super duper that I love is MYOB, which is an accounting software program. I find that extremely useful and really great and makes doing my tax and invoicing super duper easy. Getting some clear terms, conditions, and contracts with any piece of work that you do. uh, And also like explaining your costs to clients and people like that. If people are aware of your process, whether you're making jewelry or whether you're offering a service or performing, whatever, often if you can help educate people around what it takes to do what you do and the time that you spend, unless they're a jerk, they tend to be much more willing to actually pay you what you're worth because a lot of people don't understand how a creative works. They think that you're just magic and you fly down from heaven and do a magic thing and off you go. Um, (laughs) And it's like, no, no, I was like sweating in my room for like four hours beforehand getting ready, preparing all my stuff. That's such a great point because so often like if you're providing services or whatever, someone will contact you, I want to do this thing. And kind of, we talked about this before, you sort of want to tell the person how much it will cost them almost as soon as you can. Yeah. And then it's really beneficial if you have a way of being able to explain why it costs that much for yourself because otherwise it's really hard to ask for that amount exactly but also so that yeah as you yeah said, you so can like with, with my charging model currently and I tweak it over time and learn from other people I only do a day rate I don't do hourly or half day because my work involves so much prep it's very very physically strenuous and then at the end there's a lot of post-production as well and a lot of materials are involved blah 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 I also charge travel time and I explain that to clients because basically like I do a lot of interstate and international travel for my work And I lose my work time through traveling. So I can't do my artwork and I can't work for other people when I'm traveling. So I charge the client for that whole engagement and people pay it because I explain what it is and why. And I also have friends who I've talked to who do kind of work in this way and they've experimented with like, okay, well, this job, I'm going to charge this much. And then the next time, maybe I'll charge a little bit more and see if that's totally ludicrous and then experiment with moving around how much you charge to see what happens. Yeah. And also depending on the industry that you work in, there are totally different payment expectations. So if I was to sell what I do as live illustration, people would have an expectation that my charging would be around the same as illustration. However, what I am doing, I have as a consultant service and a workshop service And so I can charge a lot more because like facilitate some facilitators charge like 6,000 to like 15,000 to $30,000 to just facilitate or talk, you know, and public speakers, you know, there are some people that do the speaking circuit where they go and talk at conferences and events and things like that. And there's just a whole expectation of how much that will cost. Also for me, if I'm working at an event, if I have a client that's like reluctant to pay me my rates, I'll ask them, how much did your catering cost? Inevitably catering costs like, between six to $10,000 for a big event. And I'll be like, compare that to what I'm doing and the value proposition that what I am doing offers you and everyone that's there. And don't you think that maybe it makes sense to pay me what I'm asking? (laughs) Because, you know, things like that, just comparative, you know, and being aware of what other people are charging is really good. It can be really hard because people are quite private about it. 
I did a talk with someone who, he was a photographer and he was saying that what he did when he was trying to work out his rates was he found like five, I think, other photographers and said, hey, look, I'm moving into a similar industry. I think it was wedding photography. I really respect your work and I'd like to have a bit of an idea of what you charge just so that I know where I am placing myself. Mm. And I think some of them didn't want to tell him, but a bunch of people did and, you know, you can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You totally can. And, you know, that's with my tools and tips around like financial stuff, I think connecting with people in your community that do similar work to you can be really good to understand what the kind of expected rates are. And of course, there will always be people that do stuff cheaper. There will always be people that do stuff cheaper. But if you're offering something that's like of quality and value, it doesn't matter. Like you need to look after yourself and charge appropriately because you are a business and you'll attract certain type of people and cheaper options will attract another type of person. And like I prefer to attract people who treat things a little bit more preciously and the more expensive you are, the more you tend to attract that kind of people. Whereas if you're doing very cheap, quick stuff, it's for a certain market. There's also other things around like the service might not be just what you do, but how you do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Like it's also like how much do you invest in the relationship with whoever you're working with Yeah. and how quickly do you respond to your emails? And yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you give them a contract? Because to me I'm like contracts are good, but they also fancy, makes it seem like you are a proper person. <laughs> Yeah, I, like I'm a huge, I mean, because I have had some like challenging learning experiences, I always have contracts because it's partly looking after yourself and it's like rules of engagement at the very least. And it's about respect and transparency, which most people appreciate. Going back to tools and tips, I would say become really good pals with debt collectors. They're really helpful and great. They're like the bouncers of like making sure you get paid. If you have a client who has not paid you, they need to pay you. Even if it was a verbal agreement that they were going to pay you and you don't, like legally that is an agreement. If there is any agreement, you have legal standing to get the money off that person. And a debt collector is the hired muscle to make sure that that happens so you don't have to deal with the scary thing of being like, you owe me money, where's my money? (laughs) (laughs) If you are in a bad position of not getting paid properly or at all, debt collectors. Be clear about how much time your work actually takes and how much it costs for the materials for your work, etc. Like be really clear about that and be clear about how much you should be paying yourself. Even if you can't pay it right now, it's something to work towards. A big question is, is what you're doing sustainable? If not, maybe just doing some other work or a little bit of part-time this and that help make it sustainable. I don't particularly like credit cards, so I actually work from debit cards and I have a personal debit card for shopping and um, toilet paper and bills and a business card for all of my business expenses. And just having those two separated cards makes it really easy for me to do tax at the end of the year. I would also say avoid getting into debt unless you're making a really, really clear investment and you have a repayment plan that you can stick to because debt is a weight that is heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So there are my tips. Is that, is that all? That's it. That was, that was a lot of them. No, no, we just went off topic. 
Oh. <laughs> I thought that they were good. So that's it. I told you it was an abrupt ending. And goddamn, I love that woman. So take the plunge. Maybe break your own heart. Nurture your heart. Whatever you do, just look at your money and take care of your heart in the process. So I know that all of that info can actually be a little overwhelming. And for me, whilst I've always really admired Sarah's approach, I've also watched her for the past few years and thought, yeah, I'll just never be as good as her at that stuff. Or that seems like way too much work and I already don't have enough time to do the work I'm supposed to do. So two things. First, I only recently discovered just how planning in the way that Sarah's talking about really, really works for me. For those of you who haven't been following me closely online, I actually had quite a hard time in the three months after launching Starving Artist. I got salmonella poisoning and broke my finger and also was just like totally creatively wrecked. And doing this podcast was really like fucking hard. But in the past month, I've been using this thing called a self-journal and getting really nerdy about productivity, project planning, and setting goals, which has just totally turned my life around in the best possible way. Until this experience, I really genuinely didn't realize how important this kind of stuff is and that it's also, of course, a skill that you can learn, but that you will probably not be so great at in the beginning. Anyway, I've put some links to what I've been using and reading recently that has caused this change in me in the show notes, and you can check them out, as well as everything that we mentioned in this episode at starvingartistpodcast.com forward slash listen. Second thing, if you want somewhere to start, because I know it's hard to know where to start with all this stuff, if you're Australian, I really recommend reading The Barefoot Investor. I mentioned it here kind of casually, But since then, I've just really, really gotten into it as an entry-level resource on financial literacy. It's super easy to read and you can get it everywhere. So go get it. If you're not in Australia, I highly recommend Making Your Life as an Artist by Andrew Simonette. Both Sarah and I mentioned it in this episode and it is hands down the best resource for artists about making sustainable creative careers ever. There's a free PDF version that I've linked to in the show notes and... In the next few weeks, I'll also be giving away a bunch of copies to listeners of Starving Artist. Sign up to the mailing list to be the first to know about how to win yourself one of those copies at our website, starvingartistpodcast.com. And last resource, since the feedback from Sarah's previous episode, she's actually put together a 58-page workbook to get your thoughts onto the page. It's got all the visual models, tools, and methods Sarah uses for making sense of her life and she's going to give them to you for free. To get them, just sign up to her mailing list. The link is in the show notes. And now, as promised, those very weird sounds that I made, brought to you by Etsy. So today, I am going to see how quickly (laughs) I can start up an Etsy store. I've never done it before. I'm not quite sure what I need to do, but I'm going to try it. Let's start now. Okay, I want to open my Etsy store. My first name, last name. I will make that my password. Username, sounds great. Shop language, not Dutch, not Dutch. Country, Australia, Australian dollars. Name of my store. 
Oh, I think I need, I think it needs to be, oh, it needs to be one word. And okay, we've got one minute down. I would like to put in one listing. Title, no feeling is final. Badge. Hey, this is a badge that I made. It's one inch tall and you can wear it on your jacket and it will make you look real cool. <laughs> That's my description. Okay, we're now at three minutes 50 and I already have an item in my store, which is the no feeling is final badge. Just need to figure out how to get paid. Okay, so, ooh, this is exciting. Here's all my bank details. What is your numbers? I'm not gonna say that bit out loud. <laughs> I just need to put in my credit card, put in my details so I can sell stuff. My bank information is done. And then I think that's it. I just have to click open my shop. Your shop is open for business. <laughs> it's really cute. It has a little thing that pops up with cute drawings on it to congratulate me. That took me nine minutes and 58 seconds. And I even had to confirm my identity by providing my passport. And it still took under 10 minutes. Genuinely surprised. <laughs> wow. That, yeah. If you think that you can beat me, if you think you can do it in under, under 10 minutes, I want to see you try. I want to see it. And if you can, I will send you a free one of the first items that's in my store, which is a no feeling is final badge. You'll get one for free. And that's it. I'm set up. I am officially a seller now. You can buy things from me. Well, you can buy one thing from me. My store has one thing in it, but I will be adding more things. Since I recorded that, I now have a lot more things in my store and I've decided to up the offer. So the first five of you who beat my time will get a feelings pack with three different badges, including the no feeling is final badge and some postcards that you can cry on and send to your mates. So if you've been searching for an excuse or a kick up the butt to try making your own online store, like I have been for the past, like, well, three years, here is your chance. Grab your computer, set yourself a timer, and if you beat my time, just email me with a screenshot of your time and a link to your new store with the subject line, I totally beat you, in all caps, if you really want to rub it in. First up, though, make sure to head to starvingartistpodcast.com forward slash Etsy where you can get all the details, including some tips on how to beat my time and a promo code to use when you sign up so you can get your first 20 listings totally free. Again, head to starvingartistpodcast.com forward slash Etsy for all that info. Editing help for this episode was provided by Peter C. Hayward and Lance Turnbull. As always, the intro music for Starving Artist is by me and Starving Artist is made possible by everyone who supports me on Patreon. Thanks to everyone who signed up to Patreon in the last week for my birthday. You made my awkward entry into the no longer mid-twenties portion of my life that much more bearable. If you want to aid my soft landing into my late twenties, you can pledge $1 or more to support me making things by heading to patreon.com forward slash Love and 
After listening to this episode, I finally investigated my interest rates, and man oh man, was I getting screwed. Till next time. Bye.